Today we'll be preaching out of Psalm 35. If you would please stand and hear now the word of the Lord. Of David. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him who does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his, to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you? Delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him the poor and the needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up, and they ask me things I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother as one who laments his mother. I bowed down in mourning, but at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing like profane mockers at a feast. They gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those who wink their eye who hate me without cause, for they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord. Be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God, and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our heart's desire. Let them not say, We have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor, who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad, and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and your praise all the day long. Faith comes from hearing, in hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, 
We thank you. We thank you for your righteousness. We rejoice in your power and your ability to continue to put before us reminders of our salvation. Open our ears and heart toward your might, toward your salvation. Say to our soul, I am your salvation. Help us to hear loud and clear today those words in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's a fairly long psalm, and there's a couple of different ways that we can look at the psalm today. And I want to just focus primarily on the the part that's about mocking. Um, And I think that it's a, a good thing. It's a big chunk of the particular psalm. And as we've read the psalm now, I want you all to think about the characters that are inside of this psalm. It's, some of these are going to be low-hanging fruits, but I want to I reiterate who the characters are here very clearly for us so that we, as we learn how to sing this psalm in our own prayers, and if we ever had the opportunity to actually sing them in song in some way, if they were composed that way, that we could think about it rightly according to the context of the particular passage. So my question to you this morning is, in this passage that we've read, who are the mocked? Who are being mocked in this particular psalm, specifically? What's that? The good guys, okay. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good, easy, easy answer, but that's good. It's not the bad guys necessarily. There are times in the, in the scriptures where bad guys are being mocked, but in this particular passage, the good guy is being mocked. But there's different tiers of understanding because we have both the Old and the New Testament, so we can look at the specific context of the passage. We can look at the broader context of the passage, and then there's just very specific things inside of the passage. So who, who, what are some of the terms that are in the passage that we know that are the people who are being mocked. Well, David says me specifically. David, so this says right here of David, very in the beginning. And so we know that it's David is being mocked. David is being pursued. David is the one who is under attack. So we know that David is one of these people. Who else? The poor, maybe, do y'all see that in there? The poor and the needy, it talks about that. It says that here in verse 10, it says, All of my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him. The poor and the needy from him who robs him. So David is actually calling himself the poor um, in this particular situation. And he is the poor and needy. He is the weak one being overpowered by an enemy of some sort. Who else? In the broader context of all of Scripture, who do we know that all of these Psalms, in this particular situation, the one that we would say is the good, the good teacher, the only one who is truly good, who is this Psalm about? Jesus. So we know that the Scripture when we look at the psalm specifically and broadly throughout all of scripture, we know that this is David. This is the innocent 
This is the poor and the needy, and we know that ultimately this is Jesus, because Jesus is, these are his psalms. And David is actually representing, ultimately, Jesus as a shadow of Jesus. So he has a specific context with specific enemies, but it's all pointing toward Jesus Christ. So we know who are the specific ones being mocked. Who are the mockers in this particular passage and in the broader context of the scripture? Who are the ones doing the mocking? Well, um, it seems like in the context it would be Saul, but from what I researched before, I think the boss would be Absalom, maybe. Okay. So we, we have different characters, Saul and Absalom. A lot of times throughout the Psalms are about Psalm, I mean, about De- I mean, uh, Saul or about Absalom. Sometimes it could be nations of people, different kinds of nations that were his particular enemies. What kind of people, what other things can we see are the mockers? You hear something? The, well, what would be the opposite, you know, of the weak? It would be the strong. It says here that the strong, the ones that are strong for him. And then in the broader context of Scripture, knowing that Jesus is also one of the ones being mocked here, who are the mockers of Jesus? What's that? The ungodly, the wicked. Who are some specific mockers of Jesus. The Pharisees. And who else? His foes, his enemies, the Pharisees, the Romans, the Roman soldiers who actually crucified him. We know that he even told the disciples that he would be mocked. And so as he went to the cross, it was something that would be a fulfillment of his particular calling with that he would receive mocking. And so as we look at the passage and we're thinking about mocking specifically, I think it's important to take on this passage as we want to learn how to sing it in our own prayers. And I want to first of all give some caution that we don't too immediately put ourselves in this in the same kind of way that David had specifically. Now I'm not saying that you can't apply a psalm like this in a particular specific battle that you have with maybe a particular enemy. There are going to be times, if there are not already times in your life, where it could be applicable in that way where you have someone who is mocking you, deriding you, scorning you. And I would even venture to say, brothers and sisters in Christ, that you haven't seen the worst of it yet. I was talking to a former pastor friend of mine, former pastor, not former friend, but former pastor friend of mine this past week, and he was talking about how he used to tell his children, he would say, one day I believe you all will face immense persecution. And now he no longer says that. He says, I believe one day we will face very intense persecution. There are plenty of signs in the air around us. There's plenty of mocking already occurring in scornfulness against God's people, and it's going to elevate. So I don't want to say to you, don't assume this in a very direct way in your own life. And I'm not saying that, it's, that if you have already have in your life gone to Psalm 35 for a place of respite and a place of balm for your soul, not to not... To consider that so, but I want us to be cautious 
about how quickly we want to apply ourselves in the same way because David, we know he was representing Jesus. We know that he was a shadow of Jesus. And we know that Jesus is Jesus, and he is the fulfillment of this psalm. He is the, the, the good one. He is the good guy that fits into the psalm most innocently according to his righteousness. And so I think it's important for us to sing this psalm like David in the sense that we are seeing Jesus in this psalm. And that we are singing it toward Jesus and about Jesus. And that we apply it to our life as we see how Jesus takes our scorn and our mocking. And I'll explain that. I believe that there are two different approaches to this psalm that we must have even as a foundation before we can apply it maybe in a very specific way. I think these two things have to occur as we approach this or we are in danger of possibly being the ones who, is, who are mocking Jesus. Because it is our sins, it is because of our sins that Jesus took on the mocking. And I want us to remember what he told us in his word in Matthew 25, that whatever we do to the least of these, my brothers, whatever we do to other people who are mine, you do unto me. See, in this culture today, everywhere you go, whether it's secular or in a religious context, we are very apt at scorn, mocking, hypercriticism. When you read about studies about the things that go on in social media and in the media in itself or in just regular, regular communication, I read that it says today's consumers tend to allow their... Con- to show their contempt quickly, meaning nothing is ever off limits to insult. We are really good at mocking. And Christians are really good at mocking. Because we can find ways to apply God's word in our own way to every category of people and individuals that we meet. And we're really good at mocking one another in our own homes. I don't need an amen from that from my family. It's a problem that we have. And so if we want to sing this psalm rightly, we need to be able to go with it in two different ways. One, we need to be able to plead to the Lord to fight for our soul against our primary enemies. The enemies that we have day to day or enemies we may face in any kind of persecution or any kind of particular circumstance, they are real enemies. And again, I'm not saying that you cannot apply it in that way. But what does the Bible teach us who our ultimate enemies and our ultimate warfare is really about? It's about sin. It's about our sin. It's about your individual sin and it's about our corporate sin together. That is where the battle and the warfare is being raged because Satan and principalities and spirits in this world are out to continue to entangle us ultimately in sin. It's not just to hurt our finances or to hurt our reputation or to hurt our feelings. 
It's to hurt our soul. And so when we go to this and we read this in the context as we should, we should be looking who the primary enemies are. The primary enemies who were of David's enemy and also the primary enemies who were Jesus' enemies, which is Satan and the spiritual forces of darkness that want to continue to promote and entangle sin in our lives and to bring forth death. And so it is good and right for us to first go there and for us to plead in the same manner which David was pleading and with this wonderful imagery. Here it says, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of the shield and buckler and rise for my help. When we pray to the Lord and we cry out to the Lord, we need to get riled up and pray and plead to the Lord for him to be fighting on our behalf against our sins, against our temptations, against our hearts, desires, and pleasures that go against the will of the Lord. And we need to be praying like that for one another, that we would say, Lord, take out all of your weapons, all of your fierce weapons, against those who will torment me to stumble in sin, those who are to torment one another. You know, how often do we spend time thinking about other people's sins as an irritation or annoyance to us versus the times that we think about it in prayer saying, Lord, I'm just like my brother and sister in this situation in my own way. Lord, we're weak. Fight for my brother. Fight for my sister in this sin. Free my brother and sister from this sin for her own soul's sake and for your righteous name's sake and for your kingdom. Stop praying that they would stop doing that so they would leave you alone or quit annoying you. That's typically how we're doing it. Lord, please, get them to shut up because you're getting annoyed about it. But for his righteousness sake, we need to be pleading out to the Lord in the same manner that he would fight. And if you, does it, how many of you know what a buckler is? Not my children, you can't answer this. I've already asked them that at breakfast this morning. Anybody know what a buckler is? Anyone want to guess? Mac, you can't answer. <laughs> Anybody? Anybody know? Zane, do you know? I see you nodding here. What's a buckler? It's a small shield. Very good. It's probably, you know, if you're a Marvel fan, it's probably more like Captain America's shield than what a shield is in this particular passage. A shield is something that's usually fairly large. Almost, it, it almost covers the whole body. And a buckler is something that is much more mobile. And, and a, a real buckler, in most cases, is actually smaller than Captain America's shield. But it's something that can also use as a weapon. And it's, it's something that you can use more quickly and agile. So, so the, the psalmist is asking for God to bring out his weapons, to bring out his spear and his javelin against those who would pursue us. We are being pursued continually. So we need to be praying for the Lord to take on this fight. And I love this verse 5 here. It says, let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. Get creative with your prayers. Lord, Satan... Those who attempt me, the, the, the forces, the foes, as John says, of darkness who are against me, make it be like they're in an alleyway with slippery paths and they're falling around and the angel Lord is right on behind them. Bring forth your fear against Satan. 
against our weaknesses and temptations and our sin. Destroy our sin and remind us in this battle that you are our salvation. David says, say to my soul, I am your salvation. Put that before our minds. Remind us again and again that you will hold me fast. That you will be our salvation in this battle. Again and again when we stumble and fall, may that be before us. Do not let us fall under the mocking of demons. May your namesake be victorious. So first of all, we need to learn how to pray this for the sake of our souls. And I mean all of our souls, individually and corporate. And we need to pray fiercely that the Lord would fight for us in this time. Because there's where we're going to be tempted. All these other things that we may face or already facing, their primary main goal, Satan's primary main goal, is to break you. It is to break you so that you would fall and that you would stumble. So yes, you can apply it to specific context in your life, but understand what's really going on. And when you do that, it's going to put you into two different kinds of postures. One, a place of repentance, because you're asking God to help you with your sins. It's also going to make you humble. But then secondly, the other thing that we need to do is that we need to avoid being mockers ourselves. As we sing this psalm, we can only do so when we're asking God to bring forth his vengeance against those who would mock. It would be important for us to to distinguish which side of the line we are on. Because I believe, because Christians are so good at being mockers, we automatically assume ourselves of being the innocent one. Let's look at some of the things that it talks about of these mockers. What are they like? It says, malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me things that I do not know. Often we can manipulate with our words. We can use things that really show that we have a lack of integrity. And it could be about good things. But if you notice today, especially in the political climate, even the good guys, as they're fighting the enemies, will play by rule books of doing exactly the same thing as the bad guys and how they embellish their words and manipulate with their words. We do it too. Make sure that our tongue is free from anything that would be lacking in integrity. Make sure that it doesn't have inside of it a malicious tone where we are seeking ill will upon them for personal vendettas and reasons. Again, everything that David says here, it says, for your righteousness, may this be so. We see that there is this continued comparison of what, who, who, we, who he is versus who they are. And when we do that, we have to, again, have that posture of humility so that we are not confused that the, a lot of the times the people that we are wanting to mock or belittle, they're just like us. They're sinners. A lot of times they're Christian sinners who are struggling with sin. 
And so as we consider those distinctions, make sure you're not ultimately mocking against yourself. Because you yourselves, just like Jesus says, judge not lest ye be judged. We have to be very cautious about understanding those distinctions. Also, consider when you are speaking about either a group of people or a circumstance, you know, something you've heard on the news or maybe something you've seen in the church or maybe someone in your own family or whatever it may be, whenever you've been having your attention drawn to where someone is involved in something wrong or has a wrong philosophy, do you take tremendous pleasure from their foolishness? Is your mocking of them something that gives you pleasure that they are not doing well? That they are exposing themselves in their own shame? Because the mockers here, it says, but at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Brothers and sisters, if these people that you... Scorn, if they are those who proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, you are on tremendously dangerous ground. Because Jesus says, whatever you did unto them, these little ones, these weak ones, if you go to Matthew 25, all of those people are in a context of some kind of weakness. And whatever you're doing to them, you are doing to Jesus. But who are we also for those who are unbelievers? Who do we know or how do we know that they will not become our brothers and sisters in Christ? Now, I want to talk about some positive examples of scorn because you might say, well, Charles, I know in the scriptures that, that God mocks. And you're exactly right. God does mock. Jesus, the Proverbs even says, in Proverbs 3, 34, toward the scorners he is scornful. Some translation says, God mocks the mockers. But to the humble he gives favor. So yes, God mocks, but he mocks mockers. He is scornful, but he is scornful to those who are scornful. God would not be mocked. In Galatians 6 it says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. When we are dealing with these situations in our life where we see sin being celebrated or sin being participated in, in whatever circumstance, if we are quick to go to mocking and scornfulness, we possibly are sowing, not of the Spirit, but for our own pleasures. We see in verse 15 and in 16, again, they rejoiced at the people's stumbling. We should not take pleasure in the weakness of individuals. We can take pleasure in the exposure of foolishness. That's a different thing from the exposure of fools. See, we have to be really careful because we don't have a way to really know with all certainty 
who are truly our enemies as human beings. That's why in Ephesians we are reminded that our fight is not against flesh and blood. I'm not saying there are not people, there are organizations of people that their organizations are out to destroy. Planned Parenthood, any communist nation. That is their goal, to destroy the truths of God. And so, yes, they are the enemies of God as by being defined in their principles and in their procedures. But when we are thinking about how we are seeing individuals and people, and in this day, a lot of our principles are interwoven with personalities. And the whole election was based upon that. We associate everything in that way for good and right reasons. But here are some examples. Job 12, 2, some examples of faithful satire mocking. Job talking to his friends and when they were giving bad counsel and advice. And he says, no doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. You know, he's playing with his words. He's playing with them. He's saying, yeah, yeah, you're, you're you know, he, he is exposing them that they have this great wisdom and it will die with you. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with occasions where we can use our words to expose the foolishness of what our people are doing. But remember that these are Job's friends. These are people who are in his relationship. He is walking back and forth and he is pointing back to the wisdom of God, not to just belittle them. Maybe go even further here with Isaiah and talking about idolatry, talking about the one who cuts down cedars, Isaiah 44. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow. Strong among the trees of the forest, he plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it, he warms himself, he kindles fire and he bakes bread. And he also makes a god and he worships it. He makes an idol and he falls down before it. He's talking about how an idolater will take the things of the earth and he'll use it to, to heat himself up with. He'll use it to cook a food for him and then he'll make it into an idol. He's using these words to mock idolatry and the emptiness of idolatry. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah does the same thing. He says, cry aloud. He's talking to, their, to people who are worshiping a false god. He says, cry aloud for he is a god. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and he must be awakened. And then they responded. They cried out aloud and they cut themselves after their custom and swords with lances until blood gushed out upon them. And as midday they passed, they raved until the time of their offering of oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Elijah is mocking idolaters for saying, you know, maybe you're God, maybe he's out to lunch, maybe he's in the bathroom. Yeah, there are places where using sharp language is necessary in highlighting that the gods of this world are empty. But it's not so much a personal attack. It's more so an attack against the false god. Jesus uses language that way with the Pharisees as they are criticizing him for eating with tax collectors and sinners. And he turns around and he says, yeah, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, he plays with them. He says, yeah, you all are righteous. You all are well. You all don't need a physician. 
So yeah, there is pointing out people's mistakes, but again, what kind of interactive relationship do they have with one another? What is the ultimate end and who is being glorified in the end? A Scottish pastor and theologian of the past, James Denny said, it is very hard to show that Christ is magnificent and how clever you are at the same time. Where do your words end up pointing when you use satire or you use sarcasm, when you mock? At the end of the day, does it bring more glory to God and honor to God? Or does it show that you're smarter or wiser or better than your enemy yourself? If you notice that three times with David's psalm here in verse 10, he talks of, or 9 and 10, I will rejoice. And again, in 17 and 18, I will thank you in the great congregation. And then at the end, it closes again with praise. Everything that the psalmist is doing here is drawing it all back to the righteousness and the magnificence of God. I would dare say that most of evangelical mocking that is occurring today that we read about in articles or we see in interviews or hear in podcasts is not for the purposes and it is not bringing forth the fruit of showing the magnificent might and wonder and grace and power of God. It is to show distinction and division and it is to bring forth personal pleasure that we are not like them. Paul does the same thing with the Corinthians. He says, you already have all that you want. You've become rich. You've become kings. I wish that you would reign and that we might sh- you might be able to share your rule with me and I am nothing but a spectacle, a fool for Christ's sake. He's making that same kind of distinction there that Job was doing. But... Paul was pouring himself out to the people of Corinth. He was walking with them, sacrificing for them, showing forth his love and his compassion for them. He had a covenant relationship with them that was bringing it all together. He wasn't just from afar. So much of our mocking and scornfulness is from a distance. It is in the darkness. It is behind closed doors often sometimes just in our own hearts. For 2 Timothy 2, 24, 25 says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Patiently enduring evil. We're so quick, we don't even give time to think about it. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. James three seventeen. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. David says that they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land. Are your words promoting peace in the end? 
It is very unlikely that you will bring people to conviction of their sin by using primarily and foremost scorn and mockery. God gives us the formula of how that is done through gentleness, patience, sympathy in 1 Peter 3.8, seeking to have a unity of mind, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Very recently, just in the last couple of days, one who I dearly love, we found ourselves striving against each other instead of striving alongside of each other against that spiritual darkness. Satan loves to divide us and cause us to fight against each other. And because sin still resides in our heart, we are very quick and easy to do this. But David closes and he says, let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. See, when we think about the righteous, we say, okay, yeah, I can praise Jesus Christ. I can, I can, I can, I can tell of his greatness. But think about your brothers, mentally look at your brothers and sisters next to you. I don't want you to freak them out too much by staring at them. <laughs> that person in your life is representing two different things. That person, if they are another believer, they are a representation of Jesus Christ. They are Jesus Christ. They are the body of Jesus Christ. Now you also know this person has sin. And you know their sins, and the the closer these people are to you, the more about you know that there's sin. So let's go to the cross. So when we're at the cross, and Jesus is taking on this mocking that he says that he has to take. You see, he told the disciples, he says, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. When Jesus is on the cross and he is being mocked, and we've said this before, we say, when Jesus was on the cross, I was with him. Well, your brother and sister is saying the same thing. When when Jesus was on the cross, your brother and sister was on the cross. And Jesus separated things at the cross. He separated our sin from us. And he put it upon himself. And it was in the form of mocking and crucifixion. And he died. And what was left there, not only on the cross, but as he rose from the grave, as it says in the same passage, and he will be raised on the third day, he takes us with him, and we rise up with him. So that brother and sister in Christ with you, you need to remember that you are right there on the cross with Jesus, with your brother and sister. Does your words highlight that your sin and their sin were being destroyed on the cross? Or are your words aimed at the individual in such a way that you're ultimately mocking Jesus Christ? 
I know that's kind of a difficult imagery to have, but we all tend to think about that for ourselves very much. We, we often, and we need to hear about it more. I mean, we need that kind of comforting. We have that there even in the Psalms saying, Lord, you are my salvation. Remind my soul that I am your salvation. Say that to me, Lord. Keep telling me that. And so we like to remember that when we were on the cross, our sin was on the cross. And when Jesus rose from the grave, we were with Jesus. But so is our brother and sister. In that same sin, the same sins are all upon the Lord. May it be that we are careful that our words are not mixing those up. May it be that in the end, when Jesus is bringing us all back together, that we're not those that have a lifetime of mockery against Jesus. And that also goes for those who we seek to present the gospel to. Now, this is not easy. It's not something that I can do in a sermon. I can't say, okay, here's how you do it. But when we pray this prayer, when we pray this psalm in this way, when we go and we are fighting for one another, asking the Lord to fight against our sins, and when we go and we think about how everything that we should do should ultimately end in the rejoicing and the praise of Jesus Christ, it is very likely that in the time that the Lord is working in your own life, that it will diffuse those words that are piercing your brother and sister or a potential brother and sister wrongly. May we remember what is going on each time we speak. We are either drawing people to the cross or we are turning them away. And may we cling on to the cross ourselves and ask the Lord, Lord, remind us of these things for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters in Christ.